When was the last time you got angry? Were you filling out your taxes? When was the last time you just, just this anger, you just felt it in your chest, your chest tightens up, you get hyper-focused? When was the last time you got angry? Maybe it was something someone said to you again. And just, what scares you? What, what, I'm not going there. What gives you anxiety? What scares you? What makes you happy? What's something that you love? Nobody has to tell you to love it. You just love it. It brings you joy. And you just, it just, ah, I can't get enough of that. What makes you angry? When was the last time you got angry? What scares you and what makes you happy? And what does God think about our emotions? What does God think about our emotions? We have heard many messages, and some believers have wrongly, some believers have wrongly promoted the idea that feelings, emotions, are to be avoided. They can't be trusted. God doesn't have emotions, and they are not part of our journey. They're a bump in the road, but whew. you know, this morning I was talking to someone and they said, what are you preaching about? I said, emotions. Said, right? They're a part of our journey, but they're just a part we have to tolerate. Is it like a glitch in the operating system? Like things would go way better if we didn't just have all these feelings slowing us down. The Christian church has wrongly promoted the idea for years that emotions are something to be avoided. God doesn't have feelings. This was just this past week. I heard a very popular Christian author and teacher. I like this person. I so want to tell you who it was, but I'm not going to do that. But this is what they said about feelings. Unless we are able to wean ourselves off feeling good from God, we're done. Unless we're able to just, ah, I don't need to feel good from God, that's weakness, right? Real growth looks like ignoring all those things, following Jesus. Unless we're able to wean ourselves off of those good feelings, man, it's over. Is that true? Is that true? I was uh, reading a church bulletin like you do. Not this church. It was another church. And it had a prayer request in there. It said something to the effect of, we pray that this body of believers would, regardless of the circumstances, trust Jesus and be completely stable. Right? Like as if, as if life was a roller coaster with up and down, mm -mm, just now it's a monorail. All right? Is that what the Bible teaches about emotions? Is that biblical? Does God have emotions? I was in this room when a pastor told me he doesn't. It wasn't a pastor that works here. He was visiting. 
And he, don't worry. And he said, God doesn't have emotions. And then he gave me a big theological word to back that up. And then I went, there's a lot of people that believe that. A lot. Some believers have wrongly promoted the idea that our feelings are in the way of us following God. Man, we're never going to be whole people until we learn how to handle being people with emotions. Like it or not, our emotions are here and they are here to stay. Now what? How are we going to deal? I want to this morning poke at three misunderstandings we've heard about emotions. I want to call them lies because I feel that strongly. We have been told three lies about emotions, but I'm a really nice person and like lies kind of assume that someone's intentionally misleading us, and I don't think that's the case. So they're not lies. There are three mistakes. There are three misconceptions. There are three wrong ideas, mistruths. That sounds super political, huh? It wasn't a lie. It was a mistruth. There are three bad ideas that we have about emotions, and we're going to look at all three of them through the lens of Scripture. How does God feel about our emotions? Are they a mistake? Is growth, learning to move away from emotions... Is that possible? What do we do? How do we do there? So this series, my hope and intention, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John, but emotions provide a fantastic on-ramp to get back into the Gospel of John. Um, love is a word that John uses a little bit. All right? It's a little bit. And so it's going to provide a fantastic on-ramp, but we're going to take this off-ramp, get away from the Gospel of John, and talk about this. Because, I mean, nothing has been more transformative for my own spiritual journey than coming to grips with emotions. Nothing. We are not brains on a stick. Years ago, there was this, uh, I met this person, and I said, oh, man, we should get together sometime. And she went, ah. Oh. I really would like to get to know you, but I'm too busy studying my Bible. Like, what? What do you mean you're too busy studying your Bible? What? I, okay. How is that statement possible when the Bible's greatest command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We ain't got time for that, though. We've got a lot of facts to memorize. There's going to be a quiz. There's going to be a final and I don't think God is a very gracious teacher. How did we get here? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about these three lies that we have been told about emotions. We're going to unpack them. We're going to look at it from the lens of Scripture. And our hope and our prayer in this series is that we can reclaim a more holistic way of knowing God and others. There's two ways to know things. You know things with your gut. All right? If, if you're driving to, to St. Louis, you're going to go to the zoo, you're super excited. Right, do they have a panda at the St. Louis Zoo? No. 
Okay, who cares? I'm still excited, right? I'm going to St. Louis. I'm on I-70 East. It's fantastic. It's the greatest two-lane highway stretch in America. Oh, my goodness. Look at that beautiful amber waves of gray. Poof! Flat tire. We pull over to the side of I-70. Fear not. The Midwest is the nicest place on planet Earth. I will get out of my car and I will attend to this flat tire. My dad was wrong. I can do it. I get out of the car. All right, I don't know if you're that type of person that doesn't go into the left lane. Please start becoming that type of a person, all right? You just realize how orange that Subaru Impreza was. Very orange, all right? That is an emotional experience. Like, what? Your mind is picking up on so many details about your environment before your cognition can catch up with it, before you can have cognitive thoughts. In one-sixth of a second, you're analyzing that situation in respect to your well-being, and, and then your body has reactions. Your heart rate gets faster. Your pupils dilate. You sweat. That's all emotion. Or as Dr. Todd Hall describes, emotions are the way we evaluate our meaning, the meaning of our experience with respect to our well-being. We evaluate the meaning of our experiences with respect to our well-being. That just happens in one-sixth of a second. It's not just on the freeway. It's at grandma's house. You walk in through the door and you see that uncle, that aunt who's going to ask you, you pregnant yet? We are evaluating our experiences with respect to our well-being. That's emotion. There's two ways to know things. That's, there's, that's one way of knowing things. There's another way to know things. That's the implicit way we know things. It just happens in our gut. Another way we know things is explicit, facts, right? You think about being on the side of the highway and those cars are going by quickly. In that moment, you're not saying, whew, that 2018 Subaru Impreza was about 18 inches from my toes. I have 10 toes. I'd like to keep 10 toes. That's cognitive, right? We're not thinking that when, boom, right? We need both. There's, we need to know God in both ways, with our guts, emotionally, and intellectually. How can we bring our emotions to him and say, God, I want your word I want your perspective to shape my experience. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 51, 6, you desire, you delight in truth in my innermost being, in my gut, in my heart, however you want to say it from it. Whatever makes you you, that, those reactions, you desire truth there. How do we get there? What does that look like? So we've got to talk about these three mistakes if we're going to be people who are really loving Jesus with the heart he gave us. Oh, my goodness. If we don't talk about emotions, bad things happen. Bad things happen. All right? Like, if you don't talk about emotions, I've been in part of small groups where, there, where people are trying to talk about holiness. How do we live holy lives? And because, because they're not thinking about the implicit ways that we know God, the, the, just the ways we know God with our gut, they're like, oh, you know what? How we, we have these facts about God, and so we write out lists of do's and don'ts. Right? So we have facts about God. If this is true, then therefore, I should be doing all these things. I should avoid this. I should definitely do this. And, and it just becomes this huge burden. And holiness, 
which is a beautiful component of our lives, becomes a burden. A burden. All oh, these things I have to do, all these things I don't want to do. Now that I said I don't want to do them, I definitely want to do them. I didn't, I didn't want to do them before, but now that I'm on a list of things I shouldn't do, man, I definitely want to do that. Oh my goodness. But when we learn to, to move into a different space, the space that God invites us into, when we talk about these three lies, we can get at real growth. We can really love Jesus with the heart he gave us. So let's look at these three lies. We're going to just be, we're not going to look at one particular passage. We're going to look at a lie. Then we're going to look at some scriptures that support that. So we're going to be all over this morning just tracing our way through the Bible when we think about emotions. See, this, I didn't want to call them lies. I was trying to be nice. So mistake number one, lie number one. Emotions are not to be trusted. Logic and reason are the foundation of our faith. This is not something I've made up. I have heard Christian preachers say this. Emotions are not to be trusted. Logic and reason are the foundation of our faith. How did we get to a place where we are skeptical of emotion and where we're really leaning heavily into logic and reason? How did we get there? What were the structures? How are we, we're surfing in waves we didn't create, all right? Who did create these waves and how did we get there? Let me just show you in case you're like, yeah, I'm not convinced. I do think our faith is very logical and reasonable, which it is. It's one of the forms of knowing. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying let's have these untethered, you know, relational and spiritual experiences. Like, woohoo! That's not what I'm inviting us into. But I am trying to poke holes in this. Our logic and reason, the foundation of our faith. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. A.T. Robertson, he's a towering figure in New Testament studies in the 20th century. I mean, he was just the Greek geek of all Greek geeks. He knew Greek better than anybody. He said, this is one of the most beautiful things Paul's ever written. It's dense with meaning. It's wildly complicated. It's incredible. And you didn't even know that and you had it read at your wedding. That's how great it is. 1 Corinthians 13, when you're trying to make an argument and you make your point three times, do we do that because we don't want people to get it or because it's important? It's important. Have you ever tried to tell a teenager something once? All right? This is super important. Paul three times is trying to tell us it's all about love. Here's time number one. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, good or bad. Yeah, bad. I, uh, they sell gongs online. I just, if, you know, if, if your child had a gong and just like, all day, you know, it overstays its welcome quickly. <laughs> Paul is saying, if, hey, if I have all this spiritual insight and I can like communicate it in a way that just boom, blows you away, Right? If I'm a really gifted preacher and I'm getting invited to conferences and my podcast numbers are going through the roof, but do not have love, it's just annoying. It's a problem. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. That's a fascinating sentence. I am nothing. Not, I need correction. If I don't have love, Nothing. He quotes Jesus there too. Jesus says, if we have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to go into the ocean. Up until very recently, I was like, why did he say that? Like, wouldn't you expect a lot of mountains then to move into ocean? Not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is saying this. If faith is incredible, and if you have just a little bit of faith in God, you can see impossible things happen. The, those are those people who are thanking God for the provision of a job, and they're still unemployed. Those are the people who are just so deeply confident. They, they get something, and they give it away. Why? Because they know God's going to provide. We can do all that. We can have a faith that just is trusting God for the impossible without love. Nothing. Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can even serve other people. We, we can be so concerned about justice, which we are as a church. We can value good things. We can move toward other people. We can give sacrificially. Without love, nothing. Not profitable. This doesn't make sense if logic and reason are the foundation of the faith. Look at verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where we're like, no, not that important. It's more important to know facts about God. All right? This is a long quote. Uh, but hang in there. It's really worth it. It's from this guy, Donald Fairbain. He wrote a book called Life in the Trinity. He said, part of the reason there's a divorce between doctrine and Christian life is that contemporary evangelicals normally understand doctrines as concepts, teachings, true ideas, to which we often give the word propositions, all right, things to be believed. And we unwittingly see those as the objects of our faith. What's he saying there? He's saying we have, over the past several years, believed that it's more important to know right things about God than it is to experience and know God. Being right is more important than actually the relationship. How did we get there? This guy. In the ninth century, there was a French guy called Peter Abelard, and he literally changed the meaning of the word definition. Prior to Peter Abelard, definition meant both ways of knowing God. Knowing him with our gut, experiencing him, and then knowing him with our minds. And trying to do both of those things together was called theology. If someone were to invite us to a theology class on a Friday night, we're like, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm going to see the Mario movie. Why? Because I like fun, all right? There's nothing fun about sitting in a theology class. Why? Peter Abelar. He changed theology to like, hey, this is, there's a methodology and there's just facts, things to believe. Why did he do that? Well, because prior to Peter Abelar, uh, there weren't really circuit teachers. Like, you could travel around being a teacher, but he really popularized it. I've had the privilege of preaching and teaching in places other than this church, and it, there is like, a, there's like a, a fun thing to it because it's like what Jesus said, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, right? Like, these people don't know me. They don't know, like, I can be whiny and kind of a, like a pain in the butt. But I go there and they're like, wow, that was incredible. You're so insightful. So Peter Abelard starts doing that. I was like, mm-hmm, this ain't bad. I like this. He started traveling around making tons of money, and he cared about his reputation as being really smart. And what happened was he redefined theology, and the experiential knowledge of God started getting a bad taste. Experiential knowledge of God, knowing God with our gut, was relegated to the mystics. It became this thing, oh, just like weirdos who grow really long nails and live in the desert and sit on poles for a long time. That's what they do. We're Christians. We love God in a classroom. You ever notice that Jesus, when he was walking around teaching, he never once stepped foot in a school? He taught people where they were, on the road, 
on the countryside. He used real life objects. Why? Because he's trying to integrate our whole lives into knowing God. We have relegated it to like, oh no, I want to be really smart. I want to know a lot about God. That gets respect in our culture. Peter Abelard started that. Then it got really worse. Mistake, and it leads into mistake number two, which is these are the waves we're surfing in. Mistake number two is uh, we think emotions disorganize our thinking. Have you ever heard, has anyone ever said this to you? You're just being emotional. Is that ever a good thing? They do not mean that positively in my experience. Like, you're being emotional. That's, that's usually said to be like, man, we're like rational people. We're going through life. Things are happening to us and we're thinking through. Okay, thing one happened. Got it. Thing two happened. Got it. Therefore, you though are going through life and things are happening. You're like, whoa, ah, what do I do? You're being emotional because emotions disorganize our brains. And we are thinking people and emotions mess that up. How did we get here? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of Genesis 1. Ooh, Genesis 1. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 1. I'm going to start in verse 26. This, you could, you could hang your hat on just Genesis 1. Oh my goodness, I love Genesis 1. If I had an option, we'd never leave Genesis 1. It's so dense, it's amazing, it's rich. Everything you need to know about yourself, Genesis 1. Here you go, this being the most important, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over fish in the sea and birds in the sky, over livestock and wild animals, and over all the creatures of the ground. So what does God said in verse 26? Let's make man in our image, okay? He said it, we got it. Listen to verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. Yeah, we already heard that. Thank you. In the image of God, he created them. Thank you. Already heard that. Male and female, he created them. Dear, we got it. The Bible is relentlessly trying to help you understand your identity. You are made in the image of God. What does that mean? The two R's of being in the image of God. We reflect God and we represent God. That's why all in verse 26, there's all this language about you'll rule over the birds and the fish. Why? Because God rules. And so we're supposed to represent God. That's one of the R's. But we also reflect God. All right? We are God's selfie. Or as Jay-Z said, made in the image of God. That's a selfie. Welcome. We are made to reflect God. In the ancient Near East, when you built a temple, the very last step of building a temple was you put a selim. Selim, in the middle of the temple. A selim is the same word that God says about us. The image. We'll make man in our image. That changes our identity. The reason, part of the reason we think that emotions disorganize us is because we have a faulty understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. Part of that, and we're going to talk about him later, is this guy's fault. Sigmund Freud, or as pictured here, Pink Freud. You're welcome. We're going to talk about Freud. I'm not, I'm no fan of Sigmund Freud. Um, that's not saying I don't like psychoanalysis. That's not saying I think Christians can't learn a lot from psychology. But like he really messed things up. He's the father of psychoanalysis, but blah, 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 blah. he's part of the reason we think that emotions disorganize our thinking. Here's the problem though. We're made in the image of God. We are, we are an image, like an idol of the triune God. God is emotional. 
Look at the Hebrew Bible. These are just, this is just a small sampling that just came out from my head. I was just like, real quick. God feels regret in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis 6, 5, he looks out at the evil that man was doing and sees that their hearts are totally violent. I mean, they aren't treating each other in human ways. And he regrets, he feels sorrow. God speaks to people in anger. In Psalm 2, he looks out at the kings doing injustice and he's mad and he yells, ah! He speaks to people in anger. He doesn't bury his anger. His anger drives him to do something, to use his voice, to speak to people. But don't worry, it takes him a long time to get angry. It's good news. That's very good news. Exodus 34, we need to turn there. Exodus 34 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, meaning it is a really foundational and important verse, and it's really popular. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, this is when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses, and it's the only time in the Old Testament where God says his own name twice. That's super important. He is, he is revealing himself here. He's saying, this is who I am. Well, how does he reveal himself? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And, and he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. So he feels anger. But he's slow to anger. In, in Hebrew, that literally means he has a long nose. Why? Because when you're angry, your nose turns red. And so if someone has a long nose, it just takes more time for their nose to turn red. And so uh, the author of Genesis wants us to know God's nose is very long. He's patient. He feels anger and he's patient. But just look at, I want to draw your attention here to, in verse 6 where it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate. The word for compassionate is rahum. What, is, what does rahum mean? Well, rahum is used to describe nursing mothers and their babies, where there's just this tenderness. There's a care. There's a, I'm for you. We're connected. I am, your needs are my needs. I'm the one in this world that's saying, I, I just am tenderly loving you, and I'm here for you. That's how he introduces himself. He claims to be tender. Well, it keeps going. He also claims to be gracious. The, the Hebrew word for gracious is hesed, and the verb of hesed means to eagerly move towards someone. To eagerly move towards someone. These are all emotional words. But don't worry, God's not emotional. Abounding in hesed and faithfulness abounding. And not just got a little bit of it, he's got a lot. Of, that's what he says about himself. And so then we think, well, you know, emotions, they're just things that just mess me up. No, emotions are how we navigate and make sense of our world, be not in spite of God, but because of God. We are emotional creatures because we are in the image of God. It is not a design flaw. It's not a glitch in the algorithm. We are in the image of an emotional God. And that brings us to mistake number three. God doesn't have emotions. I was in this room, and a pastor of a church, not a church, not this church, but a pastor of a church, 
we started chatting. It came up that we're both doing our doctorates. He said, oh, cool. What are you writing your dissertation on? I said, well, I'm writing my dissertation on basically a biblical theology that God likes us. And he goes, what are you going to do with the impassibility of God? That's when I was like, the what? But you mean impossible? Impassable. I was like, what's that? God doesn't have emotions. When the Bible says God has emotions, it's just communicating that to our little brains. It's just trying to help us understand what God is like. Oh. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. Nothing in me believes that. Like that is foundational to who I believe God is. God is an emotional God. Jesus, the ultimate image of God, God's ultimate selfie, the ultimate image of God. If we've seen him, we've seen the Father, is what Jesus said. What did, what did he think about emotions? Jesus cried. The shortest Bible memory verse out there, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Another word for wept is cried, and he did it publicly. When was the last time you publicly cried? He's just so moved by his emotions, he's not worried about who's watching. Jesus Christ, he felt extreme anxiety. Going to the cross, Luke tells us as he's praying, his heart rate is like he's getting Apple alerts. Like, bro, need to breathe. Have you used the Breathe app today, Jesus? He felt extreme anxiety about going to the cross. He got angry. In John chapter 2, we've not got there yet in our study of John's gospel, he goes into the temple and he's, he's upset. People are not using the temple as a house of prayer. People are using the temple to buy and sell and oppress the poor. And so Jesus flips tables. I don't know if you imagine how that scene went. I don't imagine it going like this. Um, hey, I, I just want you to know, in just a couple minutes, I, I'm just going to, Watch out, okay? Just want to back up a little bit, okay? Okay, I'm going to start over here, though. You ready? All right. It's very important, guys. Lift with your legs. Okay. Now I'm going to flip this table. What does it say I do next? Oh, I, I make a whip? Okay. Okay. Watch out. Please move. No, he was mad. He's flipping tables. He gets so angry, it moves him to do something. This is not an emotionless God. He's not just like, hey, I'm trying to do an object lesson, so watch out. No, he's mad. He's mad because the spot that was supposed to be available to widows and orphans and immigrants where they could buy and make sacrifices was being used to make people rich. And he had an emotional reaction. He also feels love. In Mark's gospel, we get an account of this rich young ruler coming to Jesus, saying, what do I need to do to get saved? What do I need to do to get to heaven? Jesus, knowing him, knowing his situation, says, watch this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler says, mm, no, thank you. And he leaves sad. And then Mark tells us that Jesus loved him. He broke his heart. He moved toward him. We're made in the image of a triune God who's emotional. Jesus is emotional. Emotions do not disorganize our thinking. They are the primary way we think through this world. Emotions are a very trustworthy source to understand how you understand your world. If you are afraid to check your email, curiosity about that will reveal a lot rather than, oh, I shouldn't be afraid. That's bad. That tells us something. Our bodies are prophets. 
Our bodies are prophets, and they're telling us how we are experiencing our world. Now, does that mean we're always right? Thank you. No, 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 no. See, that's the hard thing. Like, we're, like, navigating so many messages that our culture is giving to us about our feelings. So many. Feels good. Do it. Or to quote Mid-Missouri's own, an, I think almost alumni of the University of Missouri, Cheryl Crow, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Ad. That is not true, Cheryl. People can delight in wickedness. Whoa. I mean, I, Pol Pot had feelings about the killing fields and all that torture. Not good. Because while our feelings are a trustworthy way of helping us navigate the world, they are also subject to being outside of God's authority. And so there's just three applications I want us to land the plane with about how we can be people who reclaim a more holistic way of knowing God and others. Three ways that we can avoid a dead orthodoxy. That we can say, I just want to know facts about the Bible. Just tell me what to believe. I'll believe it. And we won't talk about emotions. And another way where we can avoid just untethered spiritual experiences. Woohoo! This is a feeling church. And we just like, wow. There's both extremes we want to avoid. Way number one, it's just, I want to give you a passage to meditate on this week. It comes out of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, it's a beautiful passage that talks about, has emotional beings made in the image of God. How can we bring our emotions to God? Psalm 51, verse 6. You, this is David speaking to God, you delight in truth in my innermost beings. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Way number one that we can be emotional people in the image of an emotional God is to bring those emotions to God. Psalm 51, you desire truth in my emotions, in my gut, in that one-sixth of a second when that Subaru is going by, in that one-sixth of a second where I see that person who hurt me. You desire truth there. You can't fake it there. How do we do it? We, we bring it to God. Or as Jim Wilder says, we talk to God about everything until we feel better. That's prayer. What does it mean to pray? We talk to God until we feel better. God, here's what I'm feeling. We have to learn to name our emotions. And that's the second application I want to leave with you, is, is that we want to be people who not just bury emotions, but who learn to name our emotions. And the best way I know how to do that is using I statements. So the first thing we can do is talk to God till we feel better. We're meditating on Psalm 51.6 this week. We're thinking about how do we bring our emotions to God. The second way is we're using I statements. I recently have something, a possession of mine that I really like, that somebody damaged. Ugh. Let me give you two possible scenarios about how I can talk to that person about this. Hey, you broke my thing. Why did you do that? You need to be more careful. That's way number one. Way number two. Hey, uh, my thing got damaged, and it really makes me sad. And I, I don't want to just not tell you and be bitter about it. I value our relationship. So I just want to tell you. You damaged my thing, and I feel really sad about it. Do you hear the difference? I statements and you say, this one, 
puts the other person on the defensive. You and why, this one's like, hey, I feel sad about this. What, what do we do? Which one do you think is closer to Jesus' command of loving our neighbor as ourself? Do, we, do you like you statements? The reason you did that is because you always, wow. But we don't have to avoid conflict with tools like I statements. We can go in and say, man, here's how I'm feeling about that. And we can invite people. That's called love. I mean, it's foundational to our faith. Thing number three, I am very aware, very aware as a church family that when we start talking about emotions, it's going to stir up emotions. Already between services, I had conversations with people that were very heavy, very heavy. There are people in this room walking through things that are a lot. And with those come a lot of negative emotions. A lot. Throughout this series, we want to keep giving you tools. Not just tools like, hey, use I statements. Those are helpful. They're not silver bullets. We want to give you tools like Compass is starting a grief share where we can learn how we can be people who really grieve in truly human ways together. We're going to be talking about some training in connection groups so that when you come to connection groups, people are prepared for hearing stories and responding empathically. We're going to be talking about this through this series because we don't want to do this alone. We want to be people who have a more holistic view of our emotions and what God is doing, and we don't want to do that in isolation. We think the best way to do that is together. And there's fear. It's like, well, you, you may be able to handle their emotions, but you don't know my emotions. There's fear there. Part of it, too, we're in a, I think we're in a wild moment where as just evangelism, just emotional presence is pre-evangelism. There are skills that our society is in danger of losing. Skills like emotional presence. Skills like empathic listening. I mean, they just feel like they're getting rarer and rarer. And so as Christians, when we can be present to people and God, man, I think it's going to just scream how we are different. And, and part of that, too, is our cultural moment. Like the pandemic and these last three years that we all walked through, they're so different from, like, say, World War II. At the end of World War II, we had a parade, right? There was, like, ticker tape. There was, like, a picture of that like sailor kissing that lady, like, hey, wow, wow, this is so fantastic, woo right? There's no parade at the end of the pandemic. Partly because if we had a parade, it would just stir up, hey, oh, yeah, what are you saying? Well, what are you saying? Ah! And there's a lot of emotions that we just didn't get like a, hey, we all walked through something hard. Let's name it. Let's sit in it together. Let's experience what we talked about last week when Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. I got a crash course in emotions at the beginning of the pandemic. When the pandemic started, I was an associate pastor here. Uh, and when the pandemic ended, well, I mean, when whatever, I was a senior pastor here. And there were a lot of in between that. And so at the beginning of this, I was overwhelmed with a capital over. Now, please don't hear me say, I'm not trying to say, please hear me say that this is very important. It's a deep value of mine. I'm not trying to say it's harder to be a pastor than it is to be a librarian. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's harder to be a pastor than a teacher. It's hard to be a teacher. It's hard to be a librarian. It's hard to be a police officer. It's hard to work at a factory and be bored out of your gourd and come home and drink at night and watch Sports Center until you fall asleep. 
It's all hard. Please hear me say that. But I was out of my depth when we started. And just the emotions. And there were a ton of things that happened. Tons of things that happened. And so it's all coming at me. And so I find three friends in different places. I'm like, how, you're, you lead. How do you navigate this? I got wild advice. One friend I sit with, I said, hey, at your job, how do you lead people in a way that is like, a, like just how, do you, how are you keeping your head above water? He said, oh, man, it's a good question. You know, at my office, in my workplace, someone stood up and started yelling at me while I was supposed to be doing my job. No way. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, what'd you do? Oh, I just pretended there was like a switch on my heart. And I went, click. You're never going to hurt me again. Really? Yep. Okay, I don't want to do that. Friend number two. Hey, you know, you lead, you do things. How do you kind of keep your head above water? Oh, I pretend, I get angry all the time. I get angry all the time. People don't do things right. Ah, get so angry. So I pretend anger is like a shirt. Okay, and I take that shirt and I practice folding it. I don't know how to fold a shirt. And then he goes, and I take it and I just bury it so deep. And if I think it's not deep enough, I bury it even more. Huh. Find somebody else. Person number three. How do you keep your head above water? This awkward silence. Craig, over the next several months, you have one priority. Your goal is to prioritize not growing into a bitter, old man. You have to stay relationally engaged. You have to keep that switch on. You can't bury your feelings. You have to ride them out. You have to hug the cactus. The next several years were hard. I mean, if you look at before and after pictures of me, I did not have much gray hair. I did not. I don't know what happened. My wife is like, I think you're just your age. I was like, no. No, 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 no. But it was hard. I got a, school, I got a, I got a master's degree in the school of hard knocks, and I met Jesus. I didn't bury. The hardest thing we have to manage is ourselves. And we're not alone as we do that. The God of Scripture delights in truth in our guts. He delights when we get curious about our stories. So we're going to do that together. It's going to stir things up, but we're not afraid. We're going to talk to God till we feel better. We're going to use I statements, and we're going to, and we're going to, we're going to do it together. But we are going to be people who say, hey, we think emotional maturity is deeply connected to spiritual maturity, and we think love matures our emotions. Father, you delight in truth in our innermost being. God, my prayer for us as a, as a church is just what Paul's prayer was in Philippians 3. That our, or Philippians 1, that our, pray, our love would abound more and more in knowledge and insight. God, grow our love so we can know you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.